immensely privileged to share these few minutes with you. Um, I, I'm just so thrilled with the way God has caused this congregation to be really seriously involved in getting this global mission of God accomplished. I, I just have, frankly, I've been in many, many churches over these years, and I don't know of any congregation that on a per capita basis is more involved in missionary sending than this church is. So I feel tremendously privileged to be a part of, of this congregation. Years ago, I heard um, Dr. Ron Blue, who is highly esteemed in the world of missions, make this statement. Many people think that cross-cultural church planting is very complicated. It isn't. It involves essentially just two things. First, live among the people and win their friendship. Second, at the earliest possible moment, get them into intimate contact with this book. And he held up his Bible. Well, when I heard him make that statement, I thought, wow, I never heard anybody say that before we went to New Guinea. And yet that is exactly what God led us to do among these tribal people that we lived with. We did an awful lot to win their trust and their friendship. And then at last, we're able to give them this book in a language that they could understand. These people had never heard of Christ, totally untouched by the gospel. So first, we got them into intimate contact with God's word. Uh, I mean, really, that's not first, but we did that. And I want to just show you the people that we lived with. These are the Duna people, a tribal group of about 22,000. And uh, as you already heard, living way back in the interior mountains of Papua New Guinea. No roads leading into those mountains, so they were completely isolated from the rest of the world. And uh, we had the privilege of living with them, learning their language, and giving them God's word. Now that's the New Testament in that language. We had health problems after a few years, so we're not able to finish that New Testament, but we're so thankful somebody else was able to pick up where we left off. And uh, today they have the New Testament and parts of the Old in their language. But now I mainly want to talk to you this morning about living among the people and winning their friendship. I'll be telling you stories about how God enabled us to do that among these Duna people. But the principles here are applicable not only to cross-cultural witness, but really to witness within our own language and culture. So uh, this business of winning people's friendship, I, I'm not against cold turkey witnessing, mind you. But I, I think we all know that when you are able to build a friendship, trust relationship with people, your witness will be more likely to be received and uh, be more effective. Um, some years ago, Larry Dixon said to this congregation, talk to a person about their now before you talk about them about their eternity. And again, it's building some kind of a relationship with people, showing your interest in them. And then they're more likely to uh, accept or uh, be at least open to the message you want to share with them. So this is mainly what I want to talk to you about, living among the Duna people of Papua New Guinea 
and winning their friendship. I want to talk to you about how our friendship began. This man is Kudamali, and he was one of these spirit mediums who knew how to talk to the spirits. And uh, so when we arrived among these people, he was not happy with us being there. And uh, he would prowl around our house with an unhappy look on his face. And I was somewhat concerned about our safety with him. Uh, later, he actually was one of those who became a follower of Jesus, and he told us why he was against our being there. It was because he was afraid that these strange people coming into the area might upset the whole spirit world. And who knows what kind of trouble that might make for us. So he was against our being there. And as I said, I wasn't too sure about our safety with that man. But the Lord had a solution to that problem. We'd been there only about six days when a little boy fell out of a tree. And on his way down, he had snagged himself on a sharp limb, tore his skin open quite badly, so some of his insides were hanging out. Wonderfully, none of his inside uh, um, uh, was, was damaged. None of, none of his, uh, what am I looking for? Organs. One of his organs were not damaged. But, um, so they knew their medicine men couldn't save him. They knew he would die. So they brought him to us to see if we could do anything to save him. Well, my wife was a nurse. I have a thing about nurses. My first wife, who's with the Lord now, was a nurse. Sandy's a nurse. My daughter's a nurse. I've got a thing about nurses. Anyway, so she had taken a special course designed for people who would be working in very isolated parts of the world where there would be no hospitals, no doctors. So she had quite a bit of training that most nurses don't get. So they brought this little guy to us. And we looked at the wound. It was full of dirt. We knew infection would go crazy. We weren't at all sure we could save him. Well, what do you do in a situation like that? You just do the best you can. And so she began washing him up the best she could. No way you're going to get all of the dirt out of that wound. And uh, then we, this, she wasn't, didn't even have all of her nursing equipment with her at that point. And among other things, she didn't have any anesthesia to deaden pain. And she didn't have any suturing needles. Those got a curve in them. But I was able with my little blowtorch to get just a little bit of a curve in a straight needle. And then just using cotton thread, she began stitching him back together. Well, you know, in the middle of that, she checked her watch to see what time it was. Or it was evening. She thought our children are getting hungry. She checked her watch. It was 6 o'clock in the evening. And uh, so she thought, well, the children can hold off just a little bit longer and until I finish this job. So she stitched the little guy together. We did have penicillin, so we used that. But we were not at all sure he was going to survive. Well, it turns out he did. He did survive. And at that very same 6 o'clock in the evening in New Guinea, it was 3 o'clock in the morning in Greensboro, North Carolina, and a dear lady at 3 o'clock in the morning had such a tremendous prayer burden for, for my wife. It was so great, she had to get out of bed and get down on her knees and pray. And uh, she had no idea what we were dealing with. 
But um, after a while, her prayer burden lifted. And uh, later she wrote to us and she told us about that. And she said, I was just wondering if you were facing any special need at that moment. And of course, yes, three o'clock in the morning in Greensboro was six o'clock in the evening where we were. So I think she had a part. That little boy survived. That little boy survived. And I'm telling you, that was the beginning of our winning the friendship of these people. After that, old Kudamali and everybody else wanted us there. In fact, they became very protective of my wife. Didn't want anything bad to happen to her. I don't know how they felt about me, but <laughs> I guess they knew we were a package deal. They weren't going to get her unless they got me anyway. It was an extremely important turning point in our relationship with these people. As I said, she was a nurse, so she'd trained, been trained somewhat in dentistry. And uh, you can see her here uh, ministering to some of the physical needs of these people. Actually, God used her to save many people's lives. Um, many people got pneumonia, and pneumonia, in fact, was a big killer of these people. Most people died of pneumonia. And we had penicillin, so it worked miracles among the people, and she saved many people's lives. One of the things that happened in those early years was we almost lost our lives in this little airplane. It was the only way to get there, but one of the problems with our little airstrip, for one thing, it was quite short. It was as long as could be made in these mountains, but it was, it was too short for any commercial pilots. They wouldn't land on it. But our missionary pilots are specially trained to get in and out of very short runways. The problem wasn't so much the shortness of the runway. It was these winds that would catch the plane. And that's the problem with flying in the mountains. You can get crazy, unexpected winds and uh, we had more than one near crash on that airstrip because of these winds that would catch the plane as we were coming in for a landing. On one occasion, my wife and I, with our two young children, were on board, and uh, we got caught by a terrific wind just before touchdown. And the pilot later said, we came as close to crashing as you can without actually doing so. And everybody, anytime we would come in for landing. There would already be lots of people gathered around to, to welcome us. They all saw what happened. They all knew we came close to crashing and the nature of the crash would have almost certainly been fatal to all of us. So when they saw that we continued coming despite what we almost paid with our lives, that was one of the things that caused them to know how much they mattered to us. Just one more way in which God helped us to win a trust, friendship, relationship with the people. Well, I'll tell you, our kids really helped us win a relationship with the people. You know, it's pretty hard to resist kids, isn't it? And uh, so there you see our young daughter, Kathy, whom many of you have met, now a missionary in Central Asia. And there you see Paul. And... Uh, it's just really, it, you know, before we went to New Guinea, we had a, a dear Christian uh, lady say to us, now, you won't be taking your children to a place like that, will you? <laughs> well, yes. Yes. As a matter of fact, our kids helped to uh, win a, a wonderful relationship with the people. They loved our kids. 
You can see our daughter there showing a, a little doll to some of her little girlfriends, and they were amazed because that doll would close its eyes when you would lay it down and, and open their eyes when you stand it up. They, they just were really intrigued by that, those dolls. And they wanted to teach our son, Paul, to use a bow and arrow. And uh, actually, that big one there was impossible for, for, you had to have enormous strength to pull that uh, back. And uh, of course, he couldn't do that. So they made him a, a bow that would be right for him. And um, anyway, they just loved teaching our kids some of the things that they had in their culture. Uh, I know this may sound, look a little strange, but you know, they loved our kids. And uh, when we'd go on a hike, uh, of course, our daughter was, it was hard for her to keep up. So somebody would put her on their shoulders and uh, carry her along. We became learners among the people. In the upper left-hand corner there, you see me trying to start a fire. They use a friction method. They get a few uh, little splinters of wood and then they put a piece of wood over the top of that, and then they use a bamboo strip to just go back and forth very quickly, and it builds up heat, and it will catch those little splinters of wood on fire. So everybody knew how to do that, and they thought, well, we gotta teach this, this guy. So I have to tell you with some embarrassment, I got smoke, I never did get fire. <laughs> but anyway, I think it was, it was it was a good thing for them to see me at least trying to do things that they did. And uh, then they, I was watching them and they were showing me how they build these, uh, these uh, kind of, uh, oh goodness, I don't know, mats, yes, that's the word. And I do have to tell you, I never was able, it takes enormous strength in your muscles to draw those uh, bows and I never was very impressive in my doing that either. But that's okay. We came as not just know-it-alls who knew everything, we came as people who wanted to learn things from them. And that was another thing that helped us build a relationship with them. I don't know if you're aware of it, but minority peoples the world over tend to be disrespected by majority people. Are you aware of that? All through Latin America, Indian tribal groups have been put down by the majority Spanish-speaking people, have been robbed of their lands, have been cheated in business deals, have been told things like, you don't even have a real language. What you've got is some kind of animal talk. So that's been typical. And I, I think actually it's not just Latin America. I think that's pretty much worldwide. Minority peoples tend to be disrespected by majority peoples. So imagine this, somebody comes and lives among these people and does what no other foreigner has ever done, goes to the tremendous struggle, and it will be a struggle, goes to the tremendous struggle to learn their language, and by that showing respect for the people like no other foreigner ever did. Do you think that might have some effect on their openness to the message those people are sharing? I think so. So that's another way in which we won the friendship of these people. We did what no other foreigner ever did. 
we struggled to learn their language. And it was a struggle. As you already heard, it's an unwritten language, so we had to learn the language one word at a time. We had to figure out the sound system. We'd been trained to do that. There comes a point where you have a good grasp of all the sounds that occur in a language, and there's a very precise scientific process for analyzing those sounds and creating an alphabet that would be exactly right for those people. So that's what we did. We gave them an alphabet for the first time. I heard uh, Gregorio Tingston, who's sometimes called the Billy Graham of the Philippines, make this statement. In my country, the English language is widely known and used, but when a young man wants to say to his sweetheart, I love you, he says it in the local dialect, not in English, because it is his soul speaking to her soul. Folks, I don't think anything reaches people at the soul level like their own language. And, um, and that's, that's what we were able to do for the first time. These people were hearing God speak to them in their own language. We won their friendship in the same way that the Lord Jesus uh, won friendship. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. So this is one of the many things we did to serve the people. You see that shell, that white shell around that man's neck? Those are probably the most, that's probably the most prized thing any man would ever have. It is a shell that has been traded up all the way from the coast up into these high mountains. And um, so when they arrive, these shells do not have little holes that you can use, put a string through. So there's no way you could hang it around your neck. And so these people would have to drill a hole in each of those uh, edges in order to hang that thing around their neck. Well, before we arrived, the only way a man could drill a hole would be to take a, an exceptionally hard wood with a sharp point on it and just do this for a long period of time until finally that wood uh, point would make a, make a hole. So it took forever to make these holes. Well, I'll tell you, once they found out I had this little drill, I was in business. <laughs> People would come from long distances to just get me to drill holes in their shells. So that's just one of the ways we served the people. The people had a very poor diet, about 90% sweet potato. Our medical doctor in New Guinea said they suffer from inadequate protein in their diet, and I believe that was true. We noticed their children stayed small forever. They were amazed at how quickly our children are growing up. And they, uh, so I think that they really did have inadequate protein in a diet. So when we came to the people, we introduced over a period of time, lots of different uh, food that they are vegetables that they had never seen before. Carrots, tomatoes, uh, corn, sweet bananas. They had bananas, but they were not sweet. And uh, pumpkin, squash, um, and uh, pineapple, lots of things we introduced to them. So by the time we left, they really had a much uh, better diet than when we arrived among the people. By the way, they didn't like tomatoes. They did not like tomatoes. And uh, I puzzled about that, but um, turns out when you are used to a very bland sweet potato diet, uh, 
those sweet potato, the tomatoes were very acidic, and they didn't like them. But they would grow them and bring them to us, and uh, that was one of the ways they got a little bit of a little bit of money because initially they didn't have any money, didn't know what money was worth. Probably the most uh, important uh, thing that we uh, introduced to the people was chickens, and there is Paul <laughs> with one of the chickens. And, uh, you know, I didn't know that anybody in the world didn't know about chickens. These people had never seen a chicken. And uh, so we, when we first went to live with the people, we, had, we brought two chickens so we would have eggs. Well, then for a while we had to be gone, so we butchered the chickens and handed out the meat to all the people. And, oh, they loved it. They said, this is so much better than pig meat. How can we get some of these birds? And uh, so we ended up having a hundred day old chicks flown up from Australia, which is just south of New Guinea. And I went down to the coast and picked up these hundred day old chicks and we fed them until they were going to survive. And then we uh, traded them. They, people would have to bring us vegetables or something from their garden. And we managed to distribute all of those 100 chicks to the people. So we thought, well, now that's good. From now on, they're going to have more adequate meat, protein in their diet. Well, about three months later, the leaders came to me one day and they said, it's very sad. They said, the dogs have eaten all of our chickens. And uh, now their dogs were half wild. They really weren't good pets. So anyway, when, when that happened, they had a big meeting. These people make group decisions. A lot of tribal people do that. A lot of people groups do. So they had a big meeting, and the issue that had to be decided was, which will it be, dogs or chickens? <laughs> and everybody stood up and made their speeches, and, and then there was a unanimous decision. Chickens! So they went around and they killed off all the dogs. And uh, like I say, you don't have to feel too sorry about that because they were not good pets. In fact, they, in that big meeting, they said, these dogs do us no good. All they do is eat, a, eat our sweet potato. And uh, so they said, we have now killed off all the dogs. Can you bring some more chickens? <laughs> and uh, so we brought another hundred day old chicks up from Australia. And this time it worked. Everybody's got chickens, and it did really improve their diet tremendously. Uh, by the way, they wouldn't eat eggs. They, uh, they noticed that my children were growing so much faster than theirs, and they said, why are your children growing so much faster than ours? And I said, well, they eat eggs. And they said, well, we wouldn't ask our children to eat those things. <laughs> And for whatever reason, they, it was, they were not going to eat eggs. But they used the eggs, of course, to hatch more chickens. One of the most valuable things we gave to these people was a written language. Now, they were actually feeling somewhat inferior to other tribal groups that had written language. And they didn't have written language. And uh, so it was a tremendous... Um, improvement in their self-esteem as a people when we were able to create an alphabet and teach them how to read. And uh, it was really one of the most 
valued things that we gave to these people, a written language. Now we are on a par with these other groups that have a written language. So we created primers and readers to teach people how to read their own language. And uh, this is our first graduating class. By the way, uh, I'm glad somebody uh, cautioned us. You've got to make sure you, you teach uh, the older people first. Now, they will be slower to learn. Kids will learn a lot faster than the older folks. But if you teach the kids to read first, it will really uh, destroy the authority structure in that people group. Because the kids will smart off against the adults. And uh, so very important to teach the older leaders first. And so that's what we did. And these men are all in that older uh, class of people. So now I have uh, given you each, I should ask, is there anyone here who does not have one of these sheets? Because I'm going to teach you, I'm going to teach you how to read a language, um, how to read a, an alphabet system that's uh, different from anything. Now, we're going to use squares, triangles, rectangles, circles. Uh, that's going to be our alphabet. Now, I do want to tell you, this is not the alphabet we gave to the Duna people. But I am saying that for you to create an alphabet for people who've never read, these funny little markings on paper are just as meaningless as these are to you right now. And so helping people attach sounds to these funny little markings was a very important element in, um, in teaching them to read. So initially, we actually created dominoes. But the dominoes, instead of having dots, they had letters of the alphabet. And people had no idea what these little funny little markings were, but they learned to at least identify these little changes in these markings. So they would get so they could identify and distinguish each of those funny little markings, which were, in fact, letters of their alphabet, but they didn't know that at that point. Well, once they get so that they now have noticed the difference in all these funny little markings, all right, now it's time to take them to literacy class and teach them how to attach sounds to each of those funny little markings. So let me say this. When you give people a, a phonetic alphabet where every symbol has one and only one sound, it makes it relatively easy for them to learn to read their language. It's not like English. You know English is so messed up in its spelling. Uh, one symbol can have numerous different sounds. The A can be an ah, ah, a, ah, a, um, what else? Anyways, almost all of our symbols can have more than one sound. It's amazing anybody learns to read English. Anyway, I want to teach you how to read uh, in this new alphabet system. And by the time we get to the bottom of the page, you're going to be reading pretty substantial stuff. All right, at the top, upper left-hand corner of the page is a drawing of a tie. And the, the symbols beside that tie, that's how you spell tie in this alphabet. So an upright rectangle followed by a circle, that's how you spell tie. What happens to the sound when you take away the upright rectangle? Now what have you got? I. Upper right-hand corner, a drawing of a moon. 
And beside that, there's a horizontal rectangle followed by a triangle followed by a square. That's how you spell moon in this alphabet. What happens to the sound when you take away the square? Moo. What happens when you only have the triangle? Ooh. All right, we're ready to do some syllable drills. So look at box one, and let's read that in unison, okay? Let's begin. I, tie. Box two, I, my. Box three, tie, my. Box four, tie, two. Box five, Oo, moo. Box six, oo, two. Box seven, moo, two. Box eight, my, moo. Box nine, oo, two, toot. Box ten, I, tie, time. Box 11, I, my, might. All right, we're now ready to do some heavy reading. So look at line A, read it with me. My, tie. Box B, I, tie, my, tie. Box C, I, might tie my tie. Line D, I might tie my tie too tight. There you go. Anyway, so that's, that's how these people began to learn to read, identifying sounds with each of these symbols that we created in their language. Another very important thing in relating to a people group is respecting their indigenous forms and particularly their music. These people loved music and they had various instruments. So you see the panpipe there on the right hand side. A man would walk down a trail blowing over the top of those panpipes. Each one of the pipes is a different length so it produces a different sound. And men would walk down the trail just entertaining themselves by playing some little tune. So very musical, and up in the left-hand corner are the Jews' harp. And so we just found out these people love music. And in that lower left-hand corner, you see something that they love to do. People all gathered around, but there are people in the center, and they are actually telling some story by acting. And uh, we found out these people love acting out stories. I'm really embarrassed to tell you we did not take advantage of that very important feature in the culture because you know what? That they love telling stories that way. And if we had enabled them to tell Bible stories in churches in this way that they loved, oh, I know it would have caused their church services to be far more alive and interesting than just the verbal kind of uh, communication. So we didn't do everything right. Uh, we, we, we messed up on that. Really, frankly, only later did we realize that that's, that was such an important part of their culture that we should have used that in their church services. 
sitting around the fire in their houses at night, just telling stories and letting them tell me stories. Just one of the ways we, we built a relationship with these people. One of the important things we've got to keep in mind as cross-cultural missionaries is beware of ethnocentrism. And that is defined as a belief in the superiority of one's own ethnic group or culture. You know something? I believe that ethnocentrism is universal. I believe every people group feel that their own way of doing things is superior to others. So I read something about a missionary who's been 30 years in India, and he said when Indians come to, or rather when Americans come to India, we Americans tend to focus attention on things in Indian culture that we consider to be inferior to American culture. Likewise, he said, when Indians come to America, they do the same thing. Christian Indians, when they come to America, they come to the conclusion that we American Christians do not have much reverence for God. Now, how do they reach that conclusion? It's because we Americans go to church in casual dress. If we really had adequate reverence for God, we would show it by the way we dress when we come to church. So you see, I really do think that's pretty universal. Every people group tends to think their way of doing things is superior to others. And oh my, I'm telling you, that can very, very easily happen in a missionary. I'm sorry to tell you, I was in New Guinea, I was exposed to missionaries who immediately realized they didn't even respect the people they were living among. They would uh, talk down about them. The problem with that is, sooner or later, in one way or another, people will always find out how you really feel about them. You won't be able to hide it. It'll come out. And if people find out that you feel this way about them, I don't think they'll be very much interested in the message you're trying to bring to them. So we must, we must avoid ethnocentrism. And uh, the things I'm talking to you about here are not only applicable to people in some foreign land somewhere, they're really applicable to us right here in dealing with internationals. We must not allow ourselves to uh, look down on things in their culture. Um, so, may I just share with you how the Duna people first discovered how I felt about them. This man's name is Wangano, by far the most powerful man in the whole area. And he was one of the first to become a follower of Jesus. And one day he and I were standing out in front of our house talking about a number of things. And at one point in the conversation, he said to me, you white-skinned people are really smart. You know about airplanes? You know about these little boxes that let you talk to people on the other side of the mountains? And he named a number of things like that. And then he said again, you white-skinned people are really smart. And then he said, we, we dark-skinned people are dumb.
I'm glad for what happened next because my wife and I had determined we are going to focus attention on things in this culture that we can admire. We're not going to slip into this tendency to focus on what we consider negative stuff in their culture. So when that man said to me, we dark-skinned people are dumb, well, there was in me an immediate heartfelt response. So I said to him, oh, Wangano, that's not true. And I looked around to try to find something I could use to illustrate why that wasn't true. And I saw this high mountain range in the distance. So I said to him, Wangano, if you took me up into those high mountains and left me, I would die. At night, when it gets bitterly cold up there, I wouldn't be able to get a fire started to keep warm. They knew I couldn't. They'd seen me <laughs> try. I wouldn't know how to get little animals out of the trees to have something to eat. Wangano, if you left me up there alone, I would die. And then I said to him, if any of your people were up there alone, they wouldn't die. I said, dark-skinned people know many things that white-skinned people don't know. And slowly a smile formed on his face and he said, I guess that's true. You know, I thought about that later. You know what I think was happening there? I don't think for one minute he thought his people were dumb. He was checking to see if that's what I thought. And I passed his test. And I believe it had everything to do with our continuing building a relationship with these people. They saw that we respected them. Very, very important. Well, I have to tell you that I wasn't successful in everything I tried in relating to the people. You've already noticed that the men have wigs, beautiful wigs. Um, they take those wigs off, put them on a little stand and spend hours teasing the hair and getting all the feathers and flowers just right. Very important part of their dress. So I decided, you know, I, I want to identify with people by wearing a wig. So I bought one of those and I had already been warned about these wigs that you should spray them carefully before you put it on your head because if you put that thing on the ground, it'll probably walk away because of all the, the critters that live in those wigs. So I sprayed the thing good, you can be sure of that. And then I took off my shirt, put that wig on, and I went out to just show people that I respected their dress. It didn't go over well. <laughs> they didn't like it. They did not like it. And to this day, I can't tell you exactly why they didn't like it. They may have thought I was making fun of them. I really don't know. But for whatever reason, it didn't go well. Now, when my wife and I were in India, she wore a sari. It was one of the best things she could have done. People loved that fact that my wife respected them enough that she would dress in their, in their, in their uh, saris. So in some cultures it works, but um, it did not work for us here. And then also, you know, we wanted to live in a house like the people live in. Well, 
This is one of the few tribal groups in New Guinea where they build a house that's not high enough to stand up in. So we realize there's no way we can do Bible translation work, no way we can homeschool our kids in a house where you can't even stand up and it's totally dark in there. So we ended up having to build a house that was not like theirs, which we didn't want, but that's what we had to do. So it won't be possible to identify perfectly with people in many cultures, but uh, the people saw us doing the very best we could, and I think that helped us to win a trust relationship with the people. Now, this is maybe of interest to you because it has to do with our experience in New Guinea, but I believe the same principle really applies right here in, uh, in America. Relating to people by winning a trust friendship relationship with them. Uh, again, I'm not against cold turkey witnessing, but if we want our witness to be more effective, it will likely be require us to build a relationship with people. So that's what my wife and I are trying to do with our neighbors around us, and I'm trying to do it with my barber and, and uh, with people that serve me on a regular basis, trying to build a trust relationship. All right, well, uh, my time is gone, and uh, so, Paul, is it back over to you, or? Let's, uh, let's ask the Lord for help with this, shall we? Father in heaven, we thank you that um, when you decided to bring us the most important message that could ever have been communicated to us, you came and lived among us, ate our food, slept with us, walked with us, suffered with us, and shared with us the amazing truth through your Son, Jesus Christ. The Word is took on flesh, tabernacled among us, tempted with us. We pray that we will have the same attitude toward those around us. And um, it's easy to think of people across the oceans like we've been hearing about, but how are we tenting with and tabernacling with and doing life with people around us? Are we respecting them, honoring them as you did? Remember how you reached out and touched a leper, helped the widow whose son had just died, raised little children from illness and even death. Lord, are we that invested in the people to whom you have sent us? We pray that this message would run deep in our hearts, a message that uh, leaves us, frankly, this morning found wanting in our lack of investment and identification with those that you love. We pray that this would be uh, pound us and remind us and teach us, especially with your example. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.